Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. In a recent discussion with a doctor working in the emergency department of a hospital, they shared with me the challenge of parking. Parking has been an ever-present problem in every healthcare facility I've ever worked in. Although some rural facilities don't struggle as much, space near the entrance remains a premium. But for most urban and city hospitals, unless they've had the vision that the original planners for Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands had, they grabbed a large swathe of land and strategically developed a space designed for travellers, then space is at a premium. In this particular case, the parking facility was wildly oversubscribed and lacked availability for staff, and no doubt a similar problem for patients. Staffing of healthcare has grown alongside the off-shared measure of percentage of GDP that we spend on healthcare. In fact, those two metrics are closely aligned, as staffing constitutes a big proportion of the expenditure for any healthcare facility. So this increased staffing that took place in healthcare occurred at the same time as many other industries saw declines in numbers of employees and reductions in staff. This reduction in staffing has been the case for many years with the advent of new efficiencies and technologies that reduce the need for manual labour and work shifted to other areas or different tasks. Healthcare has remained stubbornly resistant to these changes, with increasing staffing levels and rising costs. Finding the various percentages of employees and using basic maths, the healthcare workforce in this country suggests that physicians make up about 5% of the workforce and nurses about 10%. What goes to making up the remaining 85%? Given the rising levels of burnout and the great resignation that is seeing frontline healthcare workers leaving the profession at alarming rates, are we running into a reset? Is this a reset that finds our systems unable to deliver care to the same population, many of whom are already underserved or lacking access? Or is there a different technology healthcare reset coming? Join me on Healthcare Upside Down Show as I talk with Sheila Talton. She is the CEO of Grey Matter Analytics. Hi, Sheila. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, we're talking about waste and excess in the healthcare system. We've seen that as a, a long-standing problem. It feels like this truck uh, never shed anything. It just continues to acquire additional activities that are non-contributory to the patient experience. Tell us how you believe we can change that. Well, I think there's a number of things that we should be considering either as those of us that are 
running health systems and or on the boards of health systems or delivering technology to health systems. And I think technology is one of the key areas. I think that there are still a lot of manual activities that go on in the health system that really don't touch the patient. And as a result of that, those people who are in charge should be asking themselves, what do we do manually that we can automate that would improve efficiency and also free up clinical clinicians time to spend more time in actually seeing patients and attending to patients. So I don't think you'll find a single clinician on this planet that disagrees with that. So I, I, it would be disingenuous for me to do so. But I, I, I'll be honest, I've heard that before. Um, yet we continue, in fact, to pile on. In fact, if you look at the junior staff that are now starting to um, uh, enter the profession, who've gone through training, your first year interns are a great example. Data suggests that they spend 75% of their time in a small room in the basement of the hospital. And that's gotten worse from the period of time. We introduced the electronic medical record. How do we go about reversing that? It feels like this is just a continuous train. Maybe there'll be no contact with patients at some point for clinicians. Well, I think it really starts with the board uh, of these health systems. Traditionally, uh, the board was made up of donors um, versus people who are business people who would not run their businesses the way most health systems are run. But it's the board's responsibility to put in the right uh, incentives and bless the strategy of the health system overall. Um, and, and part of the strategy is clearly on the clinical side but I'm now focused on those administrative activities that again, necessary, but they're not necessary to be done by a human. So it's interesting you bring up the boards. I think, you know, most folks not so much discount it, but wouldn't think about it as, you know, the driving force, but ultimately they are the governing body. That's they right. do set the overall direction. And as you, I, I think rightly state, they're constituted from a pool that, you know, is made up of individuals that maybe contribute. They've possibly got their name on buildings. Uh, and given that that's not the right pool, where do we start looking to find better, more appropriate resources that can help move the needle and direct? I mean, does this mean putting patients on the board potentially or do they have a conflict of interest? Well, I'm, I'm more focused on um, executives and business people that have figured out how to apply technology to their supply chains, to their overall value chain, to how they run their business in the manufacturing floor, that they can also transfer knowledge of how they've done it to health systems, even though perhaps different industries. And also, make that a strategic component of the executives focus and how they will be rewarded on eliminating those activities that are done by people and have them automated. 
So I, as I think about that, you know, that's the adjacent possible, you know, we as a society look at, um, you know, other experiences. I, I pick on FedEx a lot. We're sort of acclimated to this. I can track my package from the point of, you know, instance into the system all the way to my door. At the point that it arrives at my front door, I actually get notifications. So I, I know to go retrieve it. That's great. We don't have anything like that in healthcare. It sounds like somebody from that environment that is understood, and maybe logistics isn't the only one, or maybe that's not the right pick, but are there specific areas that you've looked at and you've seen success where we brought in those resources and managed to make changes that have been very effective? Inventory management is one. Scheduling is another. And you bring up a, a very interesting one around logistics, but I would go broader around logistics because when you think about improving the quality of care, patients move around to different clinicians. And right now, we don't have in most geographies the ability to know if you're my general practitioner that I went to see an orthopedic surgeon about a knee issue, unless I tell you about it. And we started out some years back trying to implement HIEs, health information exchanges, where the whole intent was for the primary care physician to know, I went to see an orthopedic surgeon, I maybe went to see an ear, nose and throat specialist, because that logistic really does impact the quality and cost of care. So I, I think logistics and, you know, access to information, tremendously important for delivering better care. Some of that is technology, clearly. Mm -hmm. But what I hear repeatedly in the healthcare space is, especially at this point, I think with some of the interoperability moves, even some of the government regulations that have sort of pushed everybody to require the, the appropriate sharing of information, it's not so much a technical issue, but an economic one. I don't share that information because that could potentially harm my business or future business opportunity with that individual or other individuals. But yet a patient deserves the right to have transparency of cost and also to be able to shop where is the best clinician that's going to serve my needs. That's no different than any consumer buying any other service. We all shop or we should be shopping when we're looking for different goods and services to buy. And CMS is really pushing for transparency around price. So it's going to come whether they like it or not. But the way to be a differentiator, to differentiate yourself with a patient population is around the service. So the more that you can free up administrative tasks uh, being done by clinicians, they can improve their overall service to serving their patients, which is a differentiator. So I, I, I think absolutely this 
desire, need for transparency. You're right. We shop for everything else. I mean, I, I, I could spend hours looking for a, an umbrella for the outside for, for my patio. And yet healthcare doesn't deliver that information. There's some superficial. I think one of the challenges that people have is finding it, interpreting it. There's some health literacy, particularly across the spectrum of individuals. I come at it, you know, slightly better equipped as a result of my medical degree. But lack of information, if nothing else, and teasing out the right choices and options. Do we have the pathway to transparency? And from a board perspective, do you think that has to come from that, you know, level of, of implementation? Now, I actually believe, um, and I'm not one that always thinks that the government can solve everything, but I actually believe that needs to come from the government. They are the largest payer in our system here in the U.S. And they wield a big stick because they are the largest payer. And they see the costs, both retail and the, and the uh, wholesale price of different clinical procedures. So I really do think that that's something that the government should be insisting upon is transparency. You know, and, and ultimately the government is answerable to us. So we, we the individuals, ought to be demanding that. I think I, I heard from one of my other guests that um, the government has no idea. And I'll, I'll pick a very narrow focus. This was his example in the um, uh, military and not just, you know, active military, but also the veterans and, you know, all of those services. And they might find themselves with drug pricing that spans multiple instances of the same drug in each of those columns that could be wildly different. And nobody knows about the other ones, even though that information ultimately is ending up in the same place if we assume that, you know, the government is the same place. And I know that's probably a little bit of a stretch. That's a perfect opportunity for technology and artificial intelligence is tracking drugs that are the same and being able to look at where there are price differentiations. And that's a perfect thing that could be automated. So technology becomes the, I guess, the supporting act that allows you to deliver better information for better decision-making. Um, how do we, how do we start to bring that to the clinical teams, we've been trying. I mean, some of this, you, you talk about some of the key um, areas that I think we've seen implementation. How do we start to bring that? Where, are the, where is, is the low hanging fruit in this space? Well, I think in my experience of dealing with various health systems, I think that they've done a pretty good job of implementing technology to deliver care you know, and I mean now from a clinical perspective, I'm focused on and want to be focused on taking those administrative activities off of the plate of the clinicians so that they can spend more time. And again, I really think that, that those incentives have to start from the board level as well as from the government. 
So where do you start? What, what so let me give you an example. Um, it's pretty transparent, I believe, of looking at a health system and a geography, looking at their revenues, looking at the number of people that they employ and separating those from that are clinical employees versus administrative. To me, if I were, you know, on the board or leading the board as, as chairperson, I would ask the health system to show me where do they fall with their like competitors across the country of a ratio of administrative staff to clinical staff. I, I love that. It's such a simple concept. There's no no real technology involved, but what an, a simple metric to say, here's your number of people that are, are, are clinically active, right. delivering care, and here's all the other stuff. That's would right. you hazard a guess? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I can, but would you hazard a guess at where that ratio stands for a, an average place? I don't. I don't, but that is where I would start. And I would give the leadership of those institutions a goal. Show me how you're gonna reduce by 10% over the next two to three years. And the only way to do it is with automation. Otherwise, if you're telling me then you've got a number of people that are doing activities that are really not needed. <laughs> Right. I, I, I love the simplicity of it. I think it's, you know, everybody can understand it. You could publish that metric across the board. Um, it might be interesting to really. And the government probably already has that information. I, I don't doubt for one second there'll be tremendous arguments about definitions and who's really is and isn't and so forth. But, you know, you could even put that category of people that you want to argue about in a separate category and say, well, we're not sure, but we're going to assume that they're non-clinical because that's probably what's going on. So very simple. Now we start to look at this and say, we're going to apply technology to improve those non-clinical activities. I think that adjacent possible. How do we start that? We've been talking about it. Where do you start? Well, um, I would start by looking at the payroll system because everybody's getting a paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an easy place to get the numbers, clinical versus administrative. And not just administrative, you know, you also have that category of, you know, janitorial and, you know, facilities, but that's where I would start because those numbers are accurate. Everybody's getting a paycheck. Again, I, I, I love the simplicity of it because you're right. You go to the, the core system that, you know, if you're not in it, you're not getting paid. So therefore... <laughs> Uh, okay, you can volunteer all you want. That's not contributing to the bottom line. Um, so we bring all of this together. We've got uh, technology that's starting or, or, you know, thinking about the implementation of technology. Um, is this... Is this the pathway to distributing care more evenly and allowing for... Um, 
essentially, I, I think everybody comes in with the intent of delivering good care. It just doesn't get evenly distributed. Is that our pathway to being able to achieve that? Well, I don't think it's the only pathway. I think it is one. And the one that it can um, uh, uh, impact is time. Again, we talked about having clinicians have more time. So if they have more time, they can see more patients and spend more time with patients. The, and, and the other component to that is cost, right? I mean, we have, when you talk about evenly distributing the care, we all know that unfortunately, those people who can least afford care are getting the least amount of care. And many of them that can least afford it and getting the least amount need the most care because they tend to oftentimes have multiple chronic diseases and have impact from social determinants of health. But time to identify those people, time to spend um, time to look at what are the most cost-effective ways to treat these individuals, I think would start with how do you become more efficient in seeing patients? And, so and, and that you're seeing the right patients in the right context, not in the emergency room. So I, I would quote Bill the Bard and say, talking isn't doing, it's a kind of good deed to say well, and yet words are not deeds. Right. What's the next step? I think, again, I'm not one to look for the government for uh, answers, but they have the biggest stick. And I think having transparency around those ratios that I talked about earlier, and then the boards really giving goals to the leadership to figuring out how do you reduce the administrative task and automate so that you now have more uh, cost allocation that you can give to clinicians to actually seeing patients and spending more time with patients. I love those ideas. I love the simplicity of it. I think, you know, tremendous metrics that we could see and deliver it would be relatively simple. And I think it would give you a, a easily understandable concept to be able to drive this forward. Sheila, thanks for joining me today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We need to move on from discussions and start with action. Actions that increase transparency, allowing everyone to understand the healthcare system. This starts at the top with the right leadership in the healthcare at board level, driven to deliver the same service levels we have seen achieved elsewhere and supported by data made available for everyone. We've seen other industries excel in inventory, scheduling, logistics, and can apply the same levels of automation and insights to our healthcare systems to bring about real change. This is especially important at a time when we are losing so many clinical staff. If you've struggled to lose weight, get fit, or do some other personal task that's hard, one of the first pieces of advice you are likely to receive is to find a buddy or a partner to share your data and metrics with. Someone you will be accountable to each day, week, or month for reporting your progress. Your better pill to swallow? is to assess your staffing levels and gather the data to classify your staff into clinical and non-clinical and consider publishing these data. 
Even if you don't publish, they serve to inform all the ancillary tasks and opportunities for efficiencies and cost savings. As Sheila suggested, at some point, this may be another metric the regulatory bodies will ask to see published by all facilities delivering healthcare. We expect to see this with charitable companies and how much of your donation goes to the cause and how much to overhead. Healthcare could adopt a similar principle. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.